Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions make it possible for us to continue our work of informing and inspiring the faithful, of rebuilding Catholic culture and restoring Catholic tradition. Make a real difference. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. So my guest today is the returning Dr. Michael Cirilla, Professor of Dogmatic Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, good friend and uh, and general liaison to all things theology for 1 Peter 5. How are you doing, Mike? I'm fine. I'm always returning. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> like a bad penny. Just mm-hmm. So we're kind of diving back into the podcast season for 2017, and uh, Mike and I have been talking about doing a podcast like this for a while, but we didn't really have a specific agenda. There's so much to address that we thought we would just kind of dive in. So I know, Mike, you have some thoughts about things you want to address. The last time we talked, we were talking about, well, what we did is is we we published that podcast we did in what 2014 yeah about the synod and about the limits of papal infallibility and about where everything looked like it was going and our predictions were scarily accurate yes pretty uh, prescient <laughs> which is yes. I don't know if that's a good thing or not um, yeah but uh, but people were kind of hoping that we would follow up once a Morris Letizia came out and we just hadn't gotten the chance you've been busy I've been busy so now. Here we are, and it's not just a Morris Letizia, it's a Morris Letizia plus, what, eight months, nine months, something right. like that. And uh, the fallout has been tremendous. I mean, it's been more, I think, than we knew it was going to be bad. I don't know if we anticipated how crazy it was going to get. So what yeah, do you think? well, some of us did. I, I mean, you know, not in specifics, but Pat Archibald, you know, called it. He said, you know, it's going to be the balkanization of the church. I don't know if he used that word, but... You know, <clears throat> it's a free for all. Uh, the Amoris Laetitia, in your own term, Steve, is like in a row chart. You know, chart. You know, you just look at it and you can see in it whatever you want because of its critical ambiguity, right? Yeah. So that's Why what's that? happening. That's you know, different bishops are interpreting it differently, and to to the profound fracturing of the structure, the edifice of the church, is that fracturing going down to the roots? I think it is, and we're in big trouble. We're in big yeah. trouble. Yeah, it seems that way. And and off the bat, I kind of want to – I have a problem with the bishops who have tried to play coy with this. I, I got to be honest. I think it's not time to, to be circumspect anymore. You know, we have these bishops who come out and say, oh, well, Morris Letizia is ambiguous and it doesn't change anything, so nothing's changed and we're just going to treat it like it didn't happen. And I don't think you can get away with that. I don't think that priests are getting away with that in the confessional. No, you can't. And, and exactly that's why, Steve. Because at some point, a divorced and remarried Catholic who is having sex with their wife or husband uh, without repentance is going to come to you. Quote, unquote, or wife come or to husband. You. Yeah, exactly. Right. Civilly, you know, hus- you know. Yeah. And, uh, or as a bishop. And, you, and it's going to make you have to decide what to do. There's no way out. 
At some point, it's going to hit every single diocese, every single parish priest in the whole planet. And, and, and I have to tell you, I went do? to confession to a priest who was in one of these dioceses where a bishop said that. Uh, and, you know, the bishop, I think, was trying to take an orthodox approach by sort of just dodging the question and saying, well, we're not going to change anything. But this priest, who's at a conservative parish, known to be a conservative parish, not a traditional Latin mass parish, but a conservative Novus Ordo parish, uh, and, and known to be a good guy, I mean, he waffled all over the place when I brought up uh, these issues. And I brought them up at the confessional because I was expressing my frustration with the church and my difficulties sometimes. I mean, sometimes it makes me more likely to want to commit sins. <laughs> the joke that I have with, right. the, with, the, with the confessors is, why do I have to try so hard to be virtuous and Catholic when the Pope doesn't? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the lead-in to that conversation. And then we wound up having a longer conversation about why I felt that way. And, but, but, but he was coming back to this whole, well, I don't really know. And, you know, it is true that there can be subjective cases where people are committing mortal sins, but it's not, you know, their subjective culpability isn't there. And I just have to focus on Jesus and the sacraments, just this all over the place answer. And it struck me of, here's this, this articulate guy. I, you could tell that he cared. He, he claimed that his background is in moral theology, you know, um, but he couldn't answer the question. He, he right. was unable to tell me what he thought of the situation or how he should even apply it as a pastor. And this is in a, in a good diocese. It's really frustrating because if that's the case for him, what's it like for a priest under Cardinal Supich or somebody else? Yeah, even worse. And the thing is, uh, they don't know how to handle it because they're caught up in the subjective uh, uh, disposition of the, of the alleged penitence. Okay. And, the church's doctrine cuts through all that. It doesn't matter in a sense. I mean, look, uh, put it this way. The subjective disposition of the penitent, whether, you know, let's say they're ignorant, they don't know, subjectively they may not be guilty of, of, of an objective moral evil. They've divorced, they've remarried, they don't know the truth, they're having sex with their new civil spouse, and they're committing objective adultery. Subjectively, they may not be culpable of it. Steve, that does not matter. And this is why. Both objectively, because the church has always taught, JP2 reaffirmed this in Familiaris Consortio, the CDF reaffirmed this, that if you're in, a, in an objective state of adultery or bigamy, you can't receive communion. Now, that's objectively. Pastorally, in terms of accompaniment, right? The pastor, the priest in the confessional or personally, you know, has to instruct those persons who, let's assume they're in inculpable ignorance. He has to tell them, look, <laughs> here's the doctrine of Christ. He who marries a wife, divorces her and marries another, commits adultery. You may not have known that. That's all right. So you didn't know that. You might not be subjectively culpable for prior, your prior actions. Well, I mean, but moving forward, step, right, you are. That's the first thing a pastor needs to do is say, whoa, hold on. I mean, it's like a doctor. You know, if you come into a doctor and you tell him you're doing something that, you know, you're, whatever, you're taking some supplement that's poisonous. Or, what's the first thing that he's going to do? He's going to say, stop taking the supplement. Let's, let's start there. Then we can work on treating the symptoms and we can figure out why you've got the problem in the first place and any residual damage that's been done by you 
taking this, you know, weird supplement that you got that's totally, you know, black market or whatever, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I mean, it's an imperfect analogy. But. No, 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 Steve, that's beautiful. I mean, there, it, it couldn't be more perfect. I mean, the, the point is, you might not have known before that you're hurting yourself. That's all right. Don't be hung up on that. Let it go. We're not going to worry about that. But moving forward, you got to stop. Right. That, right. Let me ask you this. Before we go further... Um, I, I think that I may be making a mistake in, in making an assumption that just because people are listening to this, that they know kind of how we got here from there. Is there a way, would you be comfortable? I can do it too, whatever, however we want to do it, but, but like a summary of how Morris Letizia came about, what it, what it's doing that is a problem and the way that it's being interpreted. Cause I think that we have to frame this conversation around that understanding. No, I think you're right. And. Let's do it together, okay? Okay, okay. Um, We've got a divorce culture, right? Mm -hmm. Last half century or more, divorce has become, you know, standardized. Why? How did that become a standard? Uh, Well, the view is uh, you get married for your own personal subjective satisfaction. And then if your spouse is not satisfying you, well, jettison her or him and the kids, and find somebody who really loves you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, you can't fault people for that because, you know, everything's all about you and your feelings and your personal predilections. <laughs> I, I really do think that's at the root of it is um, the subjectivist, you know, perspective, which is really at the heart of the modernist heresy, something we could talk about later, um, but that it's all about me. You know, and so uh, for that reason, people have been led into really painful, profound, you know, shipwrecks where families, kids, you know, uh, spouses, their lives are are wrecked. You know, by the seeking after personal affirmation, personal, you know. Yeah. So the condition on the ground is basically. Divorce has become prevalent because commitment to marriage has almost completely evaporated. Now, the causes, uh, you know, are are many. Um, but I know we know from the Pope's own words that he believes that among Catholics, the I believe the the phrase he used was that the the vast majority, the great majority of marriages are probably invalid because the people never even gave consent or were improperly formed. Something along those lines. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Oh. Uh- are you kidding? I can't forget it. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the that's the operating assumption going into the the synods, the two synods on on marriage and family in 2014 and 2015, and then Amoris Laetitia, which came out in April of 2016. So there's our timeline. We're looking at three years of progression, beginning with a premise that marriage is in shambles, divorce is happening all the time, many marriages aren't even valid. Uh, there seemed to be an assumption because of his revision of the the standards and norms, uh, the juridical process for annulments, that annulments weren't being handled correctly. Uh, so just this this soup to nuts revision of the whole way that the church looks at sacramental marriages, uh, whether they even exist, whether they're valid, and and then moving forward, this idea of implementing some sort of pastoral solution for people who just whoops nobody ever bothered letting them know or they didn't realize that they're now in a second marriage that's technically adultery. And so what do we do? I mean, that's kind of, is that 
sort of a really yeah. Loose... I mean, but you opened a Pandora's box. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, the fact is that um, a marriage, the requirements for contracting a valid sacramental marriage, are actually lower than people think. Okay. It's just, do you commit to to be, you know, one with this spouse for life? You give bodily rights to them for intercourse and love, raising a family for life. Will you welcome children from the Lord? Yes or no? And that's that. Okay? It's very, very simple. That What gets complicated is... <clears throat> This idea that personal subjective feelings of satisfaction and emotional love, all right, mm-hmm. um, are a trump the objective commitment by means of a solemn vow and a sacrament, uh, for better or worse, and the or worse is being eclipsed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, for life uh this is uh sacrificing yourself your self-will your desire for respect or love or affection uh has to be sacrificed for the good of your spouse and your children actual or future children um and, and therefore first of all i the pope's um comment that you adduced is absolutely irresponsible and great you know, canonists and scholars like Ed Peters and others have very clearly stated why and how that statement is profoundly irresponsible. Um, and therefore, I, I, I my, you know, my, my, my informed opinion is that most marriages are not um, invalid. All right? And put are it, not. You said are not because your audio got kind of warbly there for a second. You no, said that's... That- are, are, most marriages are not invalid okay. in the Catholic Church, most sacramental marriages. Uh, think of it like this. You're going to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Here's an, a mundane you know, example. Um, and you know the, the contract. You see the contract. You've negotiated the terms of the contract. And you buy the house and you, you agree to pay you know, the, 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 the mortgage, etc., uh, you know, to get the house, the down payment, etc. Um, if you want to back out of that and say, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into, well, frankly, um, it's really hard to make that that case, right. regardless of of the current situation with the mortgage crisis in the U.S. Um, you knew you're buying a house, and these are the terms, and you agreed to yeah. them. And if yeah, you it wasn't a great mystery fault then that's your problem. You have, you know... So we have kind of a faulty fails. premise. We have kind of a faulty premise, but we do have the reality of of a huge divorce rate. I don't know what the current rate is. I, I've, I've read that the divorce rate has fallen in recent years, but that's probably because so many fewer people are actually, are actually getting married, married right. in the first place. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of cohabitation uh, going on and, and long-term uh, situations. Okay, so so... 
So the two synods on marriage and family, they, they evaluate, uh, you know, all this stuff. Then, then there is a post-synodal apostolic exhortation released in April 2016 called Amoris Laetitia, which means the joy of love. And uh, and it basically, yeah, I know. We're we're gonna just gloss over the yes, possible right. other interpretations. Yes, uh, the joy of being naughty. Yes, yes. So so, on the whole, this is an enormous document. I, I forget how many tens of thousands of words. I mean, it's close to fifty thousand words. I think it's a novelette it's or a novel. Yeah. In its own the, right. the biggest. I mean, the average novel length is sixty thousand words. Um, so Pro-lex we were really goop. close. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and and there may or may not have been salutatious uh, sort of things in the in the document, but the problem came down to yes, chapter eight of Morris Laetitia, which had to do with the pastoral ramifications of dealing with these situations that we're talking about, which is really the meat and potatoes. It's why this thing exists. It is, and we didn't need new teaching on marriage. We had Cassie Canubi. We had. Uh, right, the right. Consortio. We had the gospel established of Christ. Body. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, look, some guy named we're, Jesus. We're, we're, we're dancing. <laughs> yeah, right. We're dancing around the peripheries. Let's let's dig into the heart of this. Yes. Yeah, so I want to get to this chapter eight because this chapter eight, an understanding of this, and then what has come since then, I think, is what we need to get to. There's a view that sex dominates. That sexual satisfaction. There's a premium. There's an undue and gross and, frankly, diabolical premium placed on sexual satisfaction. So, to the point where, um, you know, uh, there's these notions kicking around, and this is following quick on the wake of the sexual revolution in the Western world in the last half century, but now it's entered the church in, you know, en masse and in force. Namely, that, uh, you know, sex is what it's all about. And if Wait, it's I, not? Yeah, well, that's a thing. You know, if Man, I've been, if I I've been coming at this wrong the whole time. Yeah, well, <laughs> well listen, if, if I don't pursue my own sexual satisfaction and help others to do the same, right, then I'm neurotically suppressing um, and, and causing a psychic uh, wound and, 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 and pro- profound ill in myself and in my sex partners or whoever, the idea is that if I don't find a way to um, instantiate or exercise my sexual drive, then I'm going to be suppressed. It's going to be, you know, buried, you know, under... Uh, all sorts of neuroses, and then it's going to explode in a violent and horrible way. And there couldn't be anything farther from the truth, anthropologically, in terms of how God created us. Right. Right? Because why? Um, All of our lower passions, any emotion, not just the drive for sex or eros, etc., but perhaps the emotion of anger or fear or sorrow, elation, whatever it may be, finds its peace and its proper um, harmony in subjection to reason. I mean, we experience this on a regular basis. You know, we don't want to go to work. We'd rather sleep in. We'd rather eat what we want to eat. But we have to give that up and go to work and show up. And then you go to work 
And then within an hour or two, you're engaged in whatever your duty is at work. And then guess what? You've forgotten what it was that you wanted an hour ago. Why? (laughs) Why? Because those passions for whatever it is, sex or food or, you know, venting your anger, have subsided in peaceful, harmonious subjection to reason. That's true anthropology. And in Amoris Laetitia, bringing it back home, sorry, I went kind of on an excursus there, um, has the view that, you know, if you, you know, there's that famous passage where Gaudium et Spes is miscited, Mm -hmm. that if the couple don't have relations, that could cause trouble for them and their kids. Yeah, the couple in in a in a new union, adulterous after, after union. right, and adulterous even though Gaddy Spez was talking about a, <laughs> a holy union, yeah. okay, yeah. But aside from that problem, the point is, um, that's not true. What if one of the spouses suffered an illness or an injury where they couldn't have relations? Mm-hmm. Would the marriage and family life be destroyed? Absolutely not. Would there be suffering? Yes, there would, no doubt. The point, Steve, we've talked about this before, sex is not what it's all about. And yet, there are times in Amoris Laetitia where that seems to be countermanded in an inappropriate fashion. No. I mean, Casper, leading up to the synods and Amoris, said, you know, not every Christian's called to the heroism of 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 being discipleship in Christ. And by that he meant not having sex. Now, come on. Not having sex is heroic? That's bizarre. Sorry. I mean, it's sort of the default state for most people most of the time. Yeah, right? Most of the time. <laughs> Even for married people, it's the default state most of the time. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. So... So Morris Letizia comes out, it has these several paragraphs, it has a footnote, it has these things that seem, uh, you know, on a natural reading to promote things like adulterous relations, allegedly for the good of the children, or the fact that those who are divorced and remarried and not living in continence can approach the sacraments of confession and the Eucharist. Uh, you know, which would, under our traditional understanding of sacramental theology, be a sacrilege, you know, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. 27. Right. Um, so these things come out, and sufficiently ambiguous in their wording, you know, that people are kind of, ah, it looks like it says that, I'm not really sure. But then the fallout begins, right? So you were among that group of first responders. I mean, there was a lot of commentary that happened right at first, but... You were one of the 45 who signed uh, the, the theological censures against Amoris Laetitia. Is that right. something you're willing to talk about? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So what motivated that? Why did that happen? How did that come about? Well, um, <laughs> it's a long story. Uh, the short version is that uh, Amoris Laetitia has some very serious problems, problems that far surpass the very tame but but good questions found in the dubia submitted by Cardinal Burke and the other cardinals. Um, and was this to, sort of your own dubia? I mean, does it follow that format? Well, I'll tell you what. We deliberated about whether or not we ought to submit this, uh, and and we, being the 45 theologians and priests, etc., um, 
would submit our document as a dubia, as a set of questions. A, du- a dubia mean, means doubts. Right. Um, it's a formal category in canon law and theological work where you submit questions to the church's magisterium regarding whether or not a certain position is able to be taught faithfully or heretically, you know, and we want a determination. We decided early on not to do that, um, precisely because we didn't think um, that would be uh, honest, frankly, because in Amoris Laetitia, the problems rise uh, to a critical level. Um, There are statements there that not only could be interpreted in a heretical key, but statements that themselves, on a natural reading of the text, contradict prior church teaching, not only on marriage, divorce and remarriage, reception of communion, but on the uh, objective superiority of religious life, consecrated virginity, to the married life, as dogmatically defined at Trent, on the death penalty as... um, able to be implemented justly and correctly according to infallible church teaching and scripture, etc. Right? So, so when you say that it couldn't be presented honestly as dubia, is that because dubia means doubt and there really wasn't a doubt? I mean, is that? No. Yes, that's, that's correct. Okay. Because we were c- confident that it's not a matter of our misunderstanding, purely misunderstanding uh, the document. It was a matter of the document having very serious and palpable defects on a natural reading of the text mm-hmm. that go against scripture, tradition, and the church's magisterial teaching. And therefore, what we decided to do was instead of submitting it to Cardinal Mueller at the CDF in the form of dubia, we decided to list you know, 20 or more theological censures now, theological censures are distinct from juridical censures. Juridical censure means like heresy or things like that, that mm-hmm. none of us have the power to issue. Right. But we're theologians. So we can say theologically, such and such a claim counters Christ's teaching or the church's teaching. And so we, we composed a document and uh, submitted it to the entire College of Cardinals, 219 or so cardinals, um, and the um, you know head of the college, uh, mm-hmm. Cardinal Sedano. And, and of uh, course, it was leaked before it even made it to everybody. No, that's right, but we've received no response. Yeah, no although response. some so members, I mean, especially it, clerics, have been uh, you know uh, under attack by or scrutiny, if not attack, by their prelates. So you but mean signatories? Signatories have received. Yeah. Some sort of retributive action, even though not a single cardinal responded. That's correct, yeah. That is insane. And how long, but, I mean, when was this? Thing? It came out in what, July of last yeah, year? Yeah, that's right, last year. And then our yeah. hope was that we would inspire some members of the card. I mean, our explicit request was that Sedano and the members of the, of the college would submit this to the Holy Father. And our very specific request would be that he uphold the teaching of the church uh, on all of these points, dozens, at least two dozen points that we articulated, um, that he would affirm them, we'd move forward. You know, but nothing of the sort happened, of course. But that so was let me our ask request. You this. So this and, and then our also hope, like kind of aside, our hope was that 
Cardinals in the college would see our document and be inspired by that to take to action that we could not take right. because we don't have juridical authority that they do. I mean, do you think to oppose that, the Pope on these errors? You think that the dubia of the four cardinals was in any way informed by this? I mean, did I don't know, but I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know it doesn't. So. I, it doesn't I, necessarily matter, but I am curious. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Because, yeah, it doesn't matter. So, okay, so let's get back to the timeline. So, you know, we're half an hour into this conversation, and we're still in the weeds because it's such a big issue. Uh, I've tried going back and outlining this timeline, and, and it's really really crazy in depth and there's a lot that has happened so you guys issue your censures uh all last summer there's criticism coming out from guys like professor robert spayman uh you know the most famous catholic philosopher in germany oh, yeah. yeah yeah uh there, there's other critiques i mean there's a number of big names well um uh seifert joseph seifert, yeah, joseph seifert. my these gosh guys are that's friends huge of Pope. Yeah, these these guys are personal friends of John Paul II and Pope Benedict. Seifert wrote an op-ed piece in a German publication saying the Pope, I hate to say it, but he's committing heresy. Did he actually say that? that? Yes, Seifert said that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we saw statements along the lines of he's going to split the church, you know. (laughs) At some point, Francis is alleged to have said himself, I may be the Pope. Yeah, I was going to say, he said that himself, or I may be saying something heretical, but... Yeah, so this all goes but on. But you don't care? Then, I mean, you're Peter. Then, you have to ground unity in faith, morals, and government. Around can- August, September, this letter gets sent. Well, let's let's back up a second. The the bishops of the Buenos Aires region of Argentina, where, where Francis, as Cardinal Bergoglio, was archbishop, uh, you know, these guidelines are issued, and they basically say you know, without a lot of qualification that the divorced and remarried in certain cases can be uh, readmitted to the sacraments, you know, right. without living in continence, right? So it's right. a pretty direct, it's a pretty direct interpretation. We're getting to this point where we're a Morris Letizia tiptoed up to the line. Now everybody's saying, well, yeah, and the line, basically, we're going to cross it. And we're going to say, these people who are living in objectively mortal sin can come and receive communion, can be absolved without an intention, a firm purpose of amendment, which is obviously right. part of the the form of the sacrament, the matter of the sacrament. So, so now you have this, these Argentinian bishops' guidelines saying that this can happen, and, and a letter from Pope Francis, this is late August, I think, uh, of 2016, and he says, yes, he says, this document you've written is very good. Yes. There can be no other interpretation. That's right. Morris That's right. Yeah. And it is at this point where the four cardinals, uh, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal uh, Brandmuller, uh, Cardinal Kafara, and Cardinal Meisner, uh, which is an interesting collection of On guys. the record, but there are others who are not yes, on the record. But, but yes. I mean, they're signatories. There were others who contributed to it. But we have these, these four guys. We have Cardinal Burke is the foremost canonist in the world. Car- Cardinal Brandmuller is, is considered the top expert in church history. Uh, Cardinal Kafara deeply involved in uh, the implementation of the John Paul II Institutes on Marriage and Family and, and very rooted in all of that. He's the one who got the letter right. from Sister Lucia of Fatima when he started the first John Paul II Institute in the 1980s, where she said to him, Our Lady told me that the final battle between our Lord and Satan will be over marriage and the family. Marriage, right. You know, and so he you confirmed that repeatedly. And Cardinal Meisner, who's sort of the outcast of the group. I mean, this is a guy who has some controversy around him for some things he's been involved with. That's in, right. With abortion laws in Germany and all this stuff. But in other ways, he's known 
as a conservative and one of the staunchest opponents of Bergoglio's election. In 2005, he was said to have opposed the St. Gallen Mafia that was conspiring to get Bergoglio elected, and he's a close right. friend of Benedict XVI of Ratzinger. And so, you know, there's there's sort of this interesting... It's sort of like an A-team of guys who have their own spe special weapons and techniques that they're using to approach this issue, right? So they, they but send they a letter. Dubia. I'm sorry, Steve, but, yeah. you know, that's weak. I well, love I mean, them. I love them. I pray for them. Uh, don't take this, you know, in the wrong way, but that's just weak. It's insufficient. It's, it's plain coy. But, well, in a certain sense, it's um, proper. Do you really mean juridically? It's say? proper juridically. They have to submit that first and get the response, which they didn't get, and then they move to fraternal correction, which they've apparently done. We're not sure, but it seems like they've they've so, done. Okay, that. why do you say that? So, so let's say this. So the dubia comes out, and again, I'm outlining for people at home who don't follow this obsessively because they have lives. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. This is, this yeah. is pretty nerd stuff. So, yes, yes. so they, they send this letter to the Pope privately. They, they list these five questions where they basically say, Hey, can you answer just in yes or no format, whether we still believe what the church has always said? Right. And, and I mean, that's, that's yeah. basically, right. you know, right. he doesn't respond. So two months later in November of 2016, they make public these dubia. Right. And they say, hey, we feel like we have an obligation to the faithful, and da-da-da-da-da. And well, to be clear, they're following Matthew 18, Christ's directives. Bring it to your brother in private. Exactly. Yeah. Private first, and then to the assembly, and that's mm -hmm. the ecclesia. By the way, for what it's worth, for those geeks out there, there are only two times in all four Gospels in which the term ecclesia in Greek, which means church, is utilized. And one of them is in Matthew 18. When you know, when you have a problem with your brother, talk to him privately, and then if that doesn't work, you know, you bring two or three other witnesses. Interesting. If that doesn't work, bring it to the ecclesia, to the church. So these cardinals were following procedure, and you know, I got to apologize now because I a few minutes ago I was pretty harsh. You know, I said it was weak. Well, it wasn't weak. It was actually strong. Um, they followed Christ's directives. Yes. So they brought it to the church. Yes. In November. I think it's just. Look, the frustration that we all feel right now is is pretty high, and it is. It's difficult to take these slow steps when the destruction seems to be unfolding. And yeah, and souls are on the line. Yeah. yeah, souls are on the line. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I would rather be held accountable for my passion for the faith and my zeal for souls than for my tepidity. Right. Right. Um, so I'm not going to ding you too much. I don't, I hope nobody else will, but okay. So, so they, they bring this to the public's attention in November. Uh, Colonel Burke becomes sort of the de facto leader of this, probably because first of all, he's the only non-retired Cardinal, although he's constantly being pushed to the margins and set up and <laughs> the yeah, stuff that yeah. they've done to him over the last couple of years is Malta. beyond the pale. And yeah. it would take a whole extra podcast, uh, to go into that, but yeah. But he becomes sort of the de facto leader of this, and he says at some point in one of these interviews that, yeah, if Pope Francis doesn't respond to this, there's going to have to be some kind of formal correction. Right. And so this opens the door into really, I think, where this podcast kind of needed to go, which is, I mean, is he right? Is that possible? Is that a thing that can be done? There's so much debating going on, and the debate becomes pretty rancorous over whether a living pope can be corrected, what, what shape that takes, what it looks like. And if he is, in fact, a heretic, which there is, 
I mean, there's evidence here that points to the fact that, at the very least, of material heresy. Right. So if, if a pope becomes a heretic, this was something that was hypothesized throughout history by great theologians and doctors of the church. But this is not something that really needed to be dealt with in these ways. I mean, we have cases of Pope John the Twenty Second and Honorius, and I think we've talked about those in previous podcasts. But it wasn't exactly the same. I mean, Pope John the Twenty Second was off, but then it was through his private teaching, and then he came around and recanted at the end. Honorius, you know, we're not sure that he ever actually promulgated the monothelite heresy so much as that well, he allowed it to flourish. I mean, there's yeah, debate over did, that. Historically, yeah, no, there's yeah, debate over right, that. Right, right. You know, Liberius is often brought up, but nobody can really prove that he signed on to the Arian document. There's a lot of contention over each of these cases. There's nothing as, as clear-cut as this. All right, good. So, Steve, you asked a few minutes ago whether these cardinals are in their right to do this. Uh, and the answer is yes, they absolutely are in the right to do this. Is there any precedent uh, for such a fraternal correction of a pope? And the answer is a resounding yes. And, of course, the uh, original source is found in the New Testament itself, in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapters 1 and 2, where Paul has to confront Peter when Peter acted in a way contrary to the gospel of Christ, and Peter had to correct him. Paul. Uh, Paul so, excuse me, Paul, yeah. thank you. Paul had to, <laughs> sorry, had to correct him. And um, Paul, in fact, in Galatians chapter 1 says, if anyone teaches a gospel contrary to that which I received from Christ, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And frankly, that's the Wait, formula. Wait, he didn't say anyone except the Pope. No, right, including the Pope. He even said, an angel, even if it were an angel in heaven who did this, let him be anathema. Right. All right? So he takes it all the way. So the answer is yes. There's a robust history from the time of the apostles to the present day of subordinates having, on occasion, to correct the Pope. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's been done, and sometimes very successfully, and other times unsuccessfully. I think Honorius, which you mentioned, was an unsuccessful attempt where other bishops were trying to correct Pope Honorius, um, and he dug in. That failed. John the Twenty Second, which you mentioned, was a case where other bishops and even theologians attempted and to correct king. him. And a king, and they succeeded, okay? But you're right, because in those past events, perhaps there is a degree of unclarity, although I'm not sure that's the case, but, you know, that that maybe they weren't espousing heresy, which I, I think they were. I think Honorius was, and John the Twenty Second was. But you're saying here, very clearly, Francis is contravening, I don't want to put this in, these words in your mouth, but Francis seems to be contravening the teaching of Christ on divorce and remarriage, and whether or not that's a situation of adultery that has to be remediated. Um, And so, therefore, it really does call for a charitable, humble, but clear and honest fraternal correction from these bishops, from these cardinals. And that that has happened Apparently, but now we're you keep limbo. saying that apparently. Why? Why apparently? Well, well, well do, you well, do you know what's happened? I mean, 
No, the we don't. I think that's the problem. That Burke has said, you know, if he doesn't respond to the dubia, we're going to issue a formal fraternal correction, which I am presuming happened, but we don't know for sure. But why and are now, you presuming that? I mean, because I hear that a lot. Because I trust but I don't... him. I, I, I think... But the, know, I mean, he didn't put a timeline on it. He said it wouldn't happen until after Christmas. After well, Epiphany, I right. think is what he actually said. That's fair. But I mean, here we are, we're, you know, however many Sundays after Epiphany, and I, I don't know. I don't know if it's happened yet. They've had him railroaded with the Knights of Malta. They've had him off to Guam. They've had him all over the place. Uh, I, I don't know. I wish I had a sense that it had happened. Well, to be honest, I don't know either. So, so whether I'm, it has or it hasn't, though, there seems like there's multiple pieces going on here. So we have... You know, one of the defenses you hear historically of Pope John the Twenty Second, and uh, I forget what his thing was. It had something to do with justification or beatification. Well, I don't remember. Yeah, so we don't need to go in the weeds yeah, on that. Okay. But right. whatever it was that he held that he shouldn't have, you know, he was he was preaching it in his personal homilies. He was doing it at such a low level that it wasn't rising to that point where it would be a violation of the teaching office of the See of St. Peter, right? Right. I mean, that's kind of historically looked at. So here, again, we go back to the first reaction to Amoris Laetitia from Cardinal Burke. And what is it that he says? This is not magisterial. It's an exhortation. Well, yeah. Carry that way. And, and, you know, I I was critical of that response because I think it undercut the, the damage that this could do. But at the same time... Technically speaking, this is an exhortation that was presented in such a way where in the very beginning, they immediately start relativizing. In the first few paragraphs, it's like it can be applied differently in different countries and different cultures, and we want to open a discussion. It was not couched in terms that made it seem authoritative in any way when it was presented. However, after the fact, Pope Francis points to Cardinal Schoenborn, and he says he's the guy. He's the official interpreter of this. He has Father Antonio Spadaro, who is the editor of uh, La Civilta Cattolica, which is the Jesuit publication. They're close friends. He's out there. We have Austin Ivory, the papal biographer. He's out there. These guys are all out there saying, they're all close to Francis, and they're all saying, this is authoritative. This is magisterial. This is, the Pope has, has issued this with his authority as a Pope, and people have to give their assent to it. So it starts out being presented as, hey, this isn't that thing. And now you have all these guys who don't have the authority technically to say, yeah, it's authoritative. <laughs> but they're saying it, and because of their close proximity to the church, what we're given is the appearance that the Pope is telling them, go out and tell people, I said so, and you have to do this. Well, a couple of things, so Steve. I mean, first of all, the Pope allegedly responded to the Buenos Aires uh, Episcopal Conference and said, yes, this is... It's not allegedly. I mean, the Vatican confirmed yeah. it. It is I mean, an authentic you know, he said document. That. So that's one thing. The second thing is, whether it was magisterial or not, or however it should be taken, many bishops throughout the world, Europe, America, Philippines, you know, etc., Malta, you know, are taking this as... Um, a directive for pastoral policy. Does it matter if it was authoritative? I mean, on some That's level, technically, it does. That's what I'm saying. In a it sense, does. it doesn't matter. But I mean, on, on a technical sense, it does, right? Because if the Holy Spirit is guaranteed to the church indefectibility and, and the Pope cannot err in faith and morals, then for him to teach something like what Amoris Laetitia says authoritatively is impossible. 
Okay, right. So that's right? wrong. No, that's wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, I mean, help me out here. Here, here's why. Okay. Um, the pope, the the pope can issue teachings in his official magisterium, some of which are guaranteed with a charism promised by Christ of infallibility, mm-hmm. and that's when he speaks ex cathedra giving a solemn definition like Pius IX did of Mary's Immaculate Conception, or when a pope like John Paul II did confirms the perennial teaching of the church that denies, for example, ordination to the priesthood to women in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, where it wasn't a solemn definition, but it was an ordinary papal magisterial act that confirmed the constant teaching of the church. In those conditions, infallibility obtains. And that's it. In no other condition. So the Pope... the Pope. But it sounds to me like you're saying the Pope can err in faith and morals. Yes, I am saying that. that <laughs> and the that's church kind of blowing teaches, my mind a little bit. The church teaches that, Steve. And if we deny it, we are in heresy. Okay, what does the church say? This is something nobody gets. I mean, this is all I do. And We've got to go you're, back. You're kind of I mean, my mind there's here. a lot of things we can go back to, but Vatican I... The document Pastor Eternus, which mm-hmm. solemnly defines, and therefore infallibly, papal infallibility. And it mm-hmm. gives the very specific parameters in which papal infallibility kicks in. And those are only ex cathedra statements or a papal ordinary magisterial statements that confirm what's been taught always, everywhere, and by all. Now, when a pope speaks magisterially... That, that does not uh, adhere to those criteria. Namely, it's not a solemn definition, nor is it an official confirmation of what the Church has taught always, everywhere, and by all. The popes can be in error in a magisterial document. I mean, uh, look, frankly, um, a quick way to get this for the uh, listeners is to look at Two really good works by uh, Father Chad Ripperger. Um, one of them is called Magisterial Authority, a short 50-page booklet, where he talks about this and make, makes it very clear. Another is called uh, The Binding Force of Tradition, um, both of which works um, show this and cross all the T's and dot all the I's uh, in a scholarly fashion. Um, so... You know, for further reading, people can look at that. But the point is, it is not Catholic doctrine that the Pope, <clears throat> any Pope, is always infallible in everything he says in a magisterial document. That's not true. No, That's but the her- faith that, and morals. That, that I mean, is this a is the thing that Catholics have had pounded into their heads for my entire lifetime, which is when he speaks on faith and morals, then he will not err. Only when it's ex cathedra, or when he's affirming something taught always, everywhere, and by all. And that means from the Gospels, to the apostolic teaching, to the fathers of the church, to the councils of the church, etc. Now, when he's saying something that's new, a novelty, a novum Mm. in Latin, right? Namely, that, you know... The faithful who subjectively are inculpable of divorce and remarriage and adultery can go to communion. Well, well, just look. You've you got to challenge yourself. Where is that in Scripture? 
Where is that in tradition? Where is that in the writings of the fathers of the church? Where is that in magisterial teaching on the infallible level? And you'll find that it is nowhere. Okay? So, yes, a magisterial teaching can be an error on faith and morals, even from the This Pope. is going to have to be like a separate podcast. In well, and of itself, it, so it, we can, we yes, can it can be, but let me, let me add one thing to this. Um, following the Protestant Revolution in the 15th century, 16th century, okay, um, there were a lot of bad popes, and that made things worse for the church at the time. A number of Catholic counter-reformers, like St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, uh, Cardinal Cajetan, um, Francis de Sales, and others, were very clear on this one point. That, um, and frankly, uh, uh, this is codified in canon law tradition by Gratian, the great 11th century medieval canonist, who says that the Pope is judged by no one except in matters of heresy. Now, that canon could not have been issued unless it was widely recognized by the entire Church that popes on occasion can be in error on matters of faith and morals. So how, why Steve, is there no, so wait, much wait, confusion hold on, hold on. on this? Wait, wait, I mean, why go, is back, this? go back okay. to Galatians 1 and 2. Okay. Peter, you might think, you know, the popular view is Peter just wouldn't eat with the Gentiles when the Jews, Jewish Christians came up to Antioch. And, you know, that wasn't great, and he made a mistake and all that. Right. Paul doesn't see it that way. If you carefully reread Galatians 1 and 2, Paul sees Peter as effectively, clearly, and unequivocally denying the gospel of Christ, that justification is made, and, and by the way, justification means forgiveness from sin and communication of the divine nature by, ways of, by means of grace through baptism, is made available to all humans regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile, and regardless of whether they're circumcised. Paul sees that as at the epicenter of the gospel, and he sees Peter as denying the gospel. So there's a case in which, fine, Peter didn't issue a magisterial statement, and yet he was he fell afoul of faith and morals. Okay. So popes can do that. That has happened. This is and when take it happens, to sink it in. has to be corrected. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to ponder this one more. But okay, so we don't have a lot of time left. So I want to bring this back around. Okay, so you know this is why this is such a huge topic. I think it's one of the reasons we've put off doing this podcast for so long is that there's so much to talk about, uh, and we just have to establish these fundamentals, this baseline. I mean, what do we expect? So you're talking about Kajetan. You know, there's this. There's this confusion. This enormous confusion in the church. Over, for example, whether uh, you know it's even possible for for this kind of formal correction of a pope, or I, and I think really the bigger, the larger question at this point is the possible, for lack of a better word, and there's probably a better word, the deposition of a pope to say you have clearly separated yourself from the church by heresy, and therefore we cardinals, we bishops are telling you Catholics no longer follow this man. He can, he's not the pope. I mean, is this a thing that can really happen? Well, it hasn't happened, as far as I know, during the lifetime of a of a living, you know, a living pope. But yes, it can happen. Um, look, let's drill down to the core here. 
right? Let's say a pope, and this is Bellarmine's example. Bellarmine, St. Robert Bellarmine brings this up in uh, many of his works. He'll say, Mm -hmm. if a pope attacks you or your loved ones unjustly, do you have a right to self-defense? Let's say a pope is kind of crazy and he's going after you or your wife or your kids with a knife or a gun, you know, can you defend yourself? Yes, you can. There were those popes too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, that's right. And, but then he expands it out. Here's the analogy. What if the Pope is attacking mother church herself? Mm -hmm. Does the church have a right to defend herself? And there's no question about it. Of course she does. And to defend herself on what matters? On the matters of faith, liturgy, sacraments, mass, and government. So if a pope threatens the very uh, existence and edifice and structure of the church herself in doctrine or morals or liturgy or government, the church not only has a right but frankly a duty to defend herself. Now, how does that play out? Because that was your question. You know, I don't. I don't know, Steve. We're on unchar- We're in uncharted ground here. We don't know. So okay, yeah. I mean, and, and let me. I mean, there's a lot that's so been I, written about it, but but it's yeah, never been but, implemented. But it's all been hypothesized, right? Exactly. Right, right. Right. You know, there's a couple of questions that this brings to mind. First of all, there there is a group, both within and outside the church, who I think look at Pastor Eternus wrongly. Look at it as sort of this super dogma that the Pope has sort of superpowers, almost that he's impeccable, that he can't mess right. up, that he can't right. sin, that he can't make a mistake. The state of Vicontists fall into this, but there's definitely a school within the church of people saying, nope, 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 can't happen. It's impossible. You can never do it. Yeah, Nobody yeah, can judge super liberals or even uh, yeah. uh, sorry, neo-Catholics fall into that too. I mean, I had a guy rage quit the comment box the other day over a disagreement on this because he says Burke is a heretic for saying that the Pope can be corrected by the Cardinals. Um, you know, and this is the guy who swears well, he's not a state of a contest, but he believes he it's 100% flat-out wrong. Reread Galatians <laughs> 1 and 2, you know. But I mean, so this, there's this understanding out there, though, that seems to be too strong. And maybe again, maybe we need to break these into some smaller, uh, some extra podcasts. I think we can talk about some of these topics separately. Um, but but I mean, there's this understanding of you know this can't be done, and so we just have to deal with this until you know he kicks the bucket, and then let's let the church figure it out afterward. That's no. one hypothesis no yeah uh you know the other hypothesis that seems to be striking terror into the hearts of mortal men is that uh, something i've been thinking lately that no help is coming these these cardinals these good cardinals and bishops who have attempted to confront the pope on this have taken this about as far as they can go they don't know what to do next because there is no precedent and so effectively it's the same thing they're not going to try to depose him. They don't have a, a, a means of doing so. They don't have a process to refer to. They don't know what to do next. And so even though they've tried to be as strong as possible and gotten now they've gotten no response and they're just kind of letting the momentum die and, and we're still stuck with them until the next conclave. Right. Well, the goal is not to depose him, right? Even if that might be the end result. The goal is to correct him. As a brother in Christ, you're falling afoul of what Jesus taught about marriage. 
But at what case. point is correction no longer the priority? I mean, when you're talking about obstinacy in error. Right. When you get to obstinacy that's manifest, then the church's self-defense has to kick in. But aren't we there? uh, Yeah, I think we might be there. I'm not sure. I think we are. Let's say we are. In that case, in this case, um, the calculation cannot be whether or not we have a reasonable prospect of success. Because let's go with that for a second. Is there a reasonable prospect of success of deposing the Pope? No. I mean, it doesn't seem that way, no. No, no, absolutely not. But is that what matters? No, <laughs> absolutely not. The goal is not to depose the Pope. The goal is to, to serve Christ. Right. And if the Pope has fallen, and it's not, i got to say, it's not unequivocally clear to yet, I don't think, that that Francis has fallen into manifest and obstinate heresy. That means formal heresy, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be, you know, manifest. That has to be made manifest. And how is that done? That's done by the dubia. That's done by fraternal correction. And frankly, we haven't had any follow-up now. It's a end of February here, 2017. We don't know whether the fraternal correction has been issued, and if so... We don't. And, and let's be honest. Is. I mean, if we're going to look at the timeline that we already know exists, it was September of 2016 when the Dubia were sent privately to the Pope. It was November when they were made public. We're looking at a two-month lapse, right? So if if Cardinal Burke waited until after Epiphany, and, you know, if the four cardinals waited until after Epiphany to do the private yeah, formal so correction, March, which, right? which Cardinal Brandmuller said, you know, that it would be done privately first... Um, and they're following that same timeline. Why two months? I don't know, but that's what they did before. Then we're not necessarily there yet where we would know. That's right. So maybe sometime in Lent this year, it'll become oh, clear. It's but the be point, a long Lent. yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> but the point is, is, is that that's the next step to determine, you know, manifest and obdurate heresy. And let's say it becomes clear that the Pope thinks. You know, divorce and remarriage under certain circumstances is according to God's will. Now, I'm not saying he thinks that. It's not clear that he does. But let's say he does. If that's made manifest, then you have to move forward and correct that. And in the end, Steve, at some point, all of this has to be corrected. Not just Amoris Laetitia, but all of the problems in the magisterium itself Everything back to Vatican II has to be clearly looked at, critically evaluated, and, if necessary, corrected. It's That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, you talk about a Pandora's box. This really is a Pandora's box. And, you know, something that came to mind, though, when you were talking about, you said the words, the goal is not to depose the Pope. It is to serve Jesus Christ. And, and I mean, technically, right, that's true. However, this is one of those things that feels a little sophistic to me. Because it's like, you mentioned that Robert Bellarmine, St. Robert Bellarmine said, that if the Pope were attacking your family, you have a right to defend them. Well, the Pope is attacking, and we have a right to defend. And is the goal in defense not to stop the attack? I mean, is that not the thing that we? Yeah, yeah. But stopping are, the attack are trying to mean several things. You could stop the attack by correcting the attacker, and he could back off. So that's one option, and that wouldn't entail deposing a pope. 
And on the other extreme, all the way on the other end, it could mean that. So we, we, we just don't know yet what's, what, what that might mean. You know, something that, that you and I have talked about in the past, whether on the podcast or just in our own personal conversations, our mantra sort of became sometime last year, there's not going to be a human solution to this. This is not right. going to be a human solution to this. God is going to have to intervene, and he will, he will wait until things get to a point where when he does intervene, there will be no question that it is him. And I find myself wondering, as we look at all of this, as we see how far afield everything's gone, as we see the massive confusion, I mean, we didn't even really have time to get into this is literally diocese by diocese, parish by parish. There are, there are bishops' conferences like in Malta, which are probably used as a test run because there's only two bishops in the entire country and they're close right. to Rome, you know, where they're actually forcibly telling the priests, you have to implement Amoris Laetitia in this heretical way, or we're going to take your faculties, or we're going to kick you out of the seminary if you're a seminarian. I mean, really draconian stuff. Right. We have that going on. We have dioceses that are trying to ignore it altogether. We have dioceses where the bishops are just being coy, and if anybody asks them, they just kind of waffle and don't really give you an answer. Every parish priest that's dealing with this is having to hear you know, from people who think like us or from people who go in and say, well, the Pope said that I can receive communion now. It has become absolute mass confusion and division. The extent and the scope of this is something... We just really didn't even have time to get to, but it's it's huge. It's in a way, I don't know if it's worse than Arianism, but it but it it seems like it's at least on a par. Yeah. Well, look, what we need talking about Arianism. What we need is a Saint Athanasius. We need the laity can do so much, and Bishop Schneider is great in you know inspiring the laity, you and I and others, to go after this, but. In the end, what we need, we need prelates in the spirit of St. Athanasius and St. Thomas More to step up regardless of the consequences, like St. John the Baptist did. You know, you can foresee that you're not going to be successful, but you still have to speak the truth of Christ and his gospel, regardless of the inevitable failure of your endeavors for the sake of Christ and for the sake of souls. Well, I mean, what worries people like us who are close to the people, as it were, I mean, you're a teacher uh, in a college, you know, I deal with thousands of readers who, you know, many of them email me their concerns. And, and what, I, what I see happening here that worries me is that the damage that is being done to souls, it's, 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 it's multiple, right? So we have the damage that's being done in the people who don't know better who are being led astray, the people who are being led into sacrilege because they're being told, you don't have to stop committing adultery and you can receive the sacraments. Right. The sacraments themselves are being profaned. Uh, so that's bad because that's an offense to our Lord that exists separately from whatever subjectively is going on with these people. So that's one level, right? But then there's the other level of people who are losing their faith in the church, they're literally saying the church cannot be what she claims to be because the Pope is violating, you know, papal infallibility. He's violating the, these things that we were told. We were guaranteed he couldn't do, and he's doing it. And that means all of the church's claims must be a lie. 
And they're leaving, either just not going to church anymore, or they're going right. to orthodoxy right. for some reason I can't fathom. Uh, but but what's happening, in my view, Mike, and you can tell me if you're seeing this too, is that the damage is unfolding at an exponentially faster rate than the response from these bishops who have had the, the courage to do anything at all. Yes, that's cor- I, I, I think you're exactly correct. Now, two things, very, very important. The first thing is to get very clear on what we are required to believe as Catholics. And that means that we do not hold that everything a pope or even the magisterium does or teaches is infallible, period. To hold that is a heresy, okay? So that means that we, can, we are now in a position, as we have been at times, analogously speaking, in the past, where there have been errors promulgated temporarily that eventually got corrected. Well, I think we can be confident that these errors currently will also be corrected. They will be, okay? We don't know how, when, where, etc. That's one thing. The second thing is more personal, and that is this. Most of us, you, me, our listeners, are not in a position to make a big difference on the world scene or with respect to the Vatican, etc. So what do we do? Give up? No. What we do is we need to have a daily spiritual maintenance. That's really, really important. And I think this is the value, part of the value of what Bishop Schneider has been promoting. That daily... We need to spend time with Christ in mental prayer. 15, 10, 15 minutes a day. Give, sacrifice that time. Put it aside. Be with him in prayer. As uh, irrelevant as that may seem at first sight or sound, okay? we need to give him that time with us to, to transform our minds, transform our hearts, and especially to give us the strength of his grace, which is ineluctable and powerful to move forward properly in our own small ways. As marginal or nugatory as that may sound. Nug- I I've never heard the word nugatory. Nugatory just means like valueless, like nougat in Milky Way bars, like <laughs> nougat, like fluffy, <laughs> sweet, but valueless. Traditionally speaking, nougat, nougatory, you know, it's going to make a big difference. It's going to make a big difference. I know it will. It doesn't feel like it's going to make a big difference. No, of course. I mean, that's the problem. Of course I think it's the problem everybody's having. Is yeah, yeah, we yeah. all want to act. We all want to yeah. do something, and there's nothing we can do. We're powerless here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> So I don't know. I don't feel like we've reached a conclusion other than that. Hey guys, it's the same thing that everybody keeps saying. Well, I'll hey tell guys, you what. Now keep praying, I'm, keep receiving the sacraments. Yeah, fine. But now what? I mean, the Vatican's shifting the focus to new and terrible things like women deacons, women priests, uh, intercommunion with Lutherans. Yeah. You know, you're like what the heck? So you know. <laughs> 
I don't know, Steve. It's it's rough. You know, yeah, it really is. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to take some of these topics uh, and spin them off into additional podcasts. Yeah. I think we're going to need to. Uh, you had sent me a list of things you wanted to talk about, and we didn't even scratch the surface. So we've got a lot more, I think, to hit. And to our listeners, I apologize a little bit about the unfocused nature of this, but we just kind of, uh, I think we just kind of needed to plow into the snowbank. You know, I don't know if you've yeah. ever had to just shovel the snowbank from the end of your driveway after the plow goes. Like, you don't know where to start. There's just too much. And, you know, if you don't start digging out, you're just not going to ever get through. It's going to just ice over and you're stuck until spring. So that's kind of what we did here. We just dove in uh, without, a, without a plan, with a wing and a prayer. And I think we've made some headway, but and we've got a long way to go. Yeah. March. I mean, March. Are we thinking that it's going to be March before we even know whether the formal correction has happened? It's, I have no idea. I have no sense. <laughs> That's the hardest thing right now is that there is, I mean, we are wandering in the desert. There is nothing. There is no indication of what right. to, to expect. There's no idea of what's going on, and and I find it to be cold comfort to be told, oh, just don't pay so much attention yeah. to what the Pope yeah, is We're in the desert. Doing. I love that. Where do we go? We need water. Where is the next oasis? We have no idea. Let's pick yeah, a direction. Yeah, the concern is pretty imminent, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think we're going to leave it here for now. We'll pick it up uh, again sometime soon, and we'll figure out the next big... Well, if I could have Probably a last word, I would, yeah, hope, do. I would hope that, that prelates, uh, Bishop Schneider, Cardinal Burke, um, any other prelate who's aware of what we're talking about, would, would, would step up and help us faithful, um, lead us forward. Um, I know that means that we're requesting you to be willing to be a martyr, a white or red martyr. Please do that for us. Please do it even more for Christ. Um, yeah, it's not fun for anybody to be a martyr, but yeah. But we're where lost. is where are the saints of this we're age? Lost. Every every heresy had the great saints that combated it. Where are they? Where are they now? They're out there, Steve, but we don't know. And they were never who, the layman. Yeah. I mean, the layman had a role, but they were no, that's always right. bishops. They that's were right. always those who had the authority given to them by Christ to do the the Galatians two eleven duty. That's right. That's right. So that's right. what we well, pray for. and I appreciate it, as always. Friend. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Okay. You've been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at 1peter5.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at onepeter5.com forward slash donate. Thank you for listening.